Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I spent much of last summer in London doing research, and it took me a while to realize that something about my routine wasn't quite right. I left my work at the British Library, and my days were filled with... I spent much of last summer in London doing research, and it took me a while to realize that something about my routine wasn't quite right. I left my work at the British Library, and my days were filled with impromptu coffee breaks with colleagues who were soon to be friends and thus fellow mischief makers. London is an amazingly cheap city to enjoy if you like museums like I do, so we were doing a lot of that as well. So my social life was together, and my professional life was together, but something still quite wasn't right. I found myself in strangely depressive moods. But then it hit me. Despite all the adventures and exploring I did, I never really went to places with trees or parks, which London is full of. And I'm a country mouse who grew up in a lush Middle Eastern village. Um, And then my walk to the British Library every day was through a busy city artery in a trendy but mostly gray neighborhood. Uh, I took the tube or the underground everywhere so I couldn't see trees in transit. My life, my routine, and to some extent, the way the city was built was affecting my mood. So on that same note, uh, how cities affect our psychologies, we're talking to someone who weaves urban history with the history of emotions. Cairo and Berlin at the turn of the century, the 19th and 20th, that is. I'm Ene Monsoor Nadira, and today my guest is Joseph Ben Prestel, who is an assistant professor of history at the Free University of Berlin, where he teaches global European and Middle Eastern history, and also was a postdoctoral fellow at the Orient Institute in Beirut for the 2017-2018 academic year. He'll be a fun global fellow at Princeton University for the 2018-2019 academic year. He received his PhD in modern history uh, from the Free University in Berlin in April 2015. Before joining um, the same university's history department as professor, he held the position as a pre-doctoral researcher at the Center for the History of Emotions within Berlin's Max Planck Institute for Human Development. He is a co-founder and co-editor of the Global Urban History Blog, which I encourage you to check out. It's an amazing blog, um, and it's how I came to know your work, actually, Joseph. And he is the author of many articles and a book, the subject of today's interview, Emotional Cities, Debates on Urban Change in Berlin and Cairo, 1860-1910, out 2017 from Oxford University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, so here on New Books in Middle East Studies, uh, we often start with a biographical question. Um, so what is your own intellectual history, so to speak? Uh, how did you come to history writing as a profession? Sure. Um, so a long time ago, I, I began studying history and um, I was lucky enough to um, have courses on global history. Uh, and I think this was very formative for me in the sense that um, this was a field that fascinated me and uh, it really um, helped my interest also in history that goes beyond Germany and, and Europe. Um, 
And then in 2005, I happened to spend a summer in Lebanon and I fell in love with uh, Beirut. Um, so out of this came kind of the idea that I wanted to focus more on the Middle East uh, and I wanted to learn more. So I started studying Arabic. Um, I picked courses uh, on the history of the Middle East. Um, so since this point, I've, I've been interested in, you know, combining global history and kind of the relations between Europe and the Middle East. And then as I went along in my studies, um, kind of accidentally, I uh, stumbled upon um, different seminars on urban history. And uh, in the beginning, I didn't have a specific interest in urban history, but through these classes, um, one of them was, for example, on the history of New York in the 20th century. Uh, another one um, was on the history of Middle Eastern cities. Um, through these classes, I really became interested in urban history. And, and this made me think about kind of the combination of global and urban history. So out of my studies um, came this, this interest in, in trying to combine global and urban history and um, thinking about, you know, the histories of Europe uh, and Middle East uh, and the Middle East um, as they relate to each other when we think about cities. So what intrigued me about your book and what made me pick it up was that it was a comparative study and that's quite unique in contemporary history writing. Um, so I suppose my question is, what brought you to Cairo and Berlin specifically? Um, and what made you seek to draw, put them to, in, into conversation with each other? So in, in urban history, there's a number of studies that we could maybe call biographies of cities. So a lot of books actually focus on a single city. Um, you know, you, you have a monograph, for example, on Paris or on Cairo or on Beirut. Um, but as I came kind of also from this global history background, I was very early on kind of interested in, in how these different histories of different cities relate to each other. And, and I think this, you know, made me uh, think about ways of, of comparing cities. Um, and if we actually look at, you know, also these urban biographies, there are a lot of ideas and, and concepts and narratives that are used that are actually from the get-go informed by comparative observations. So we read about, you know, urban modernity, for example. We read about Paris as the capital of modernity or, you know, an older concept that has kind of now disappeared um, but is still kind of lingers on is, you know, the concept of the Islamic city. Um, and all of these observations are based on uh, comparative observations. Uh, so what made me compare Berlin and Cairo was that I wanted to examine kind of the argument that the urban histories of Europe and the Middle East in the 19th century, specifically in the second half of the 19th century, are different. Um, and often in, in urban history, um, there are these kind of containers uh, of, uh, you know, different urban histories of, of different world regions. So we would get, you know, an urban history of Europe, 
Uh, we would get an urban history of, of the Middle East or an urban history of, you know, South Asia. Um, so what I'm trying to do in the book is to, to think about these containers, uh, specifically Europe and the Middle East, uh, through a comparison of Berlin and Cairo, and really try to think um, what happens if we actually compare two cities that are often um, seen as being separate, as kind of belonging to two separate um, historiographies, uh, namely the European and the Middle Eastern one. Um, and and this, this made me compare these, these two cities and, and kind of through this comparison to, you know, question um, whether these are really two separate stories. What I actually really enjoyed about it was I think your use of both cities really demonstrated to me that urban history isn't just the history of architecture, which was always my assumptions, my assumption going in. Um, but in this book, you, you sort of, again, can see how the cities impact the way people think and, and the ways urbanization or being in an urban setting can have a similar but often different effect on different populations. Um, so I sort of want to ask you about the state of the field right now. What possibilities exist for the history of cities um, in contemporary history writing? And what sort of trends are you really excited about? There's definitely a, a strong focus on the history of, of urban planning and, and of architecture and, and kind of the, the built environment, uh, if you will, um, within urban history. And, and, this this is still there and this is still very present. But there's also been for a while now a really a social history uh, of cities. And actually, specifically for the cases of Berlin and Cairo, um, you know, authors like uh, Khaled Fahmi in the in the case of Cairo or in Berlin, uh, someone like Moritz Fellmer uh, have called for moving away from, you know, these histories of urban planning and, and looking more at these kind of social histories. So if you will, moving away from a history of, of cities uh, as such towards a history of, of city dwellers. Um, so there has been this kind of uh, tendency for, for quite some years now. Um, and of course, this, you know, this interest can build on um, a long tradition and urban sociology, um, you know, there's an ongoing conversation with also anthropology. Um, and I think it is this kind of, you know, social history of cities that, that really um, drew me to, to the field. Um, and one of the things that I think is, you know, is, is quite exciting there is that uh, urban history allows you to look at very concrete spaces uh, and really actors on the ground, but to combine this this kind of perspective with larger questions. And I think there, you know, this is something um, that has been really flourishing in, in recent years. A very good example of this, I think, is uh, Will Hanley's recent book, um, in which he looks at the history of, of nationality and identification. So, you know, very large question, you know, that ties in with the global history of the emergence of nationality as a very dominant category in the 20th century. But he combines this with a history of Alexandria. And, and we really learn how people in the city, in their everyday practices, 
deployed nationality and, and how it played a role on a very kind of micro level. Um, and it is this, this tendency, I think, that um, draws me to, to urban history. And this is something, especially with, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the rise of global history um, that has become a, a very exciting and, and lively field and, and kind of combining these global historical questions um, with an on-the-ground perspective, uh, which really urban history can, can deliver in many cases. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that, that you mentioned global history because global history has also sort of become a trend, so to speak. Um, I feel like we're coming into, right now, Middle East studies, we're coming into a period where we're opening up, we're not just writing histories of nationalism, we're writing social and more urban histories, as you, as, as you mentioned, um, beginning, of course, with the work of Khaled Fethany, but continuing, of course, with um, people like yourself or Will Hanley. Um, but we're also coming into a period where we're seeing more global histories being written about the, the Middle East, such as um, Tuful Abu Hudeb's recent book, A Taste for Home, uh, has elements of global history. Sudhir Shaif's work also has elements of global history. Um, but one thing that's always sort of at the back of my mind, and this is just because the naysayers about global history have been so loud, and I identify as a global historian, is that global history is trendy, that it will sort of fall out of popularity soon. Um, is it world history, just global history? I, like, I, I open my email every now and then, and there's all these listservs that I'm on, these sort of professional history writing listservs, and there's just these fights about what global history is, whether or not it's world history, what the history of Western civilization is. Um, so what's your take on this? Is global history just trendy? <laughs> this is, of course, your book is oriented as a global history. Um, what forms of global history are useful and, and how would you define global history? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it, it has been one of the big trends in in, in in the historical profession in the last couple of, of years. And, and that of course also comes with, you know, it, it, it's pitfalls. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the fact that there is an ongoing conversation and that there are, there's kind of a controversial discussion um, around certain points is, is actually an encouraging sign and is a sign for, you know, uh, for global history as, as being something evolving and, and as not kind of a, a category that, that now, you know, can be deployed everywhere we look. Um, and I think that particularly these, um, the criticisms uh, of global history in, in the last couple of years, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of um, a piece that Jeremy Edelman wrote um, last year, you know, in, in, in which, uh, he urged global historians to to also look at you know concrete places and and not to kind of only focus on networks and and kind of the, the global um, planetary, if you will, kind of scale. Um, and I think these are these are very important uh, interventions, and uh, they really enrich the field. Um, I think that from from my understanding, global history doesn't have to be a history of the world. There, it, it's not kind of a, you know, a history of the whole planet. But global history, as I you know, um, mentioned already with the, the example of, of Will Hanley's book, can also focus on a very small and, and kind of concrete place and try to look at larger questions 
um, that you know have potentially kind of a global um, refer to global structures, um, but look at these questions in a very small setting. Um, so from my side, it is precisely this this kind of combination of you know an interest in global structures, an interest in you know larger um, larger dynamics that you know we can see in a number of places, such as you know um, the rise of nationalism, for example, or um, you know the, the empire as as a, a global force. Um, but a study of these dynamics in a, that is rooted in a specific locality. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is for me kind of the, the most interesting kind of global history. Um, and of course, as to be rooted in a certain locality, you know, that, that also means that it, it, you know, can draw on a specific archive. It, you know, can draw on, a, on the long tradition of, of area studies. It can draw on the, Kind of historiography on a specific place, um, and I think it is precisely in this direction, you know, that that kind of um, interventions in the last couple of years have have strengthened global history and and might help to you know move away from the idea that once you do global history, you have to do the history of of the the whole world. Yeah, I completely agree, partially because, well, again, I identify as a global historian, but I think a lot of what I do, I work on one or two languages. I don't necessarily incorporate all these different languages in it, but I also look at how, um, so I work on Arabic newspapers and the institution of Arabic newspaper writing, and I think one thing that has to be acknowledged is, I mean, of course, there are networks to be um, to be seen and to be studied. Um, and you mentioned the example of Jeremy Edelman's work. But there's also something to be said about global influences and global perspectives um, and those being ingested and espoused and, and reiterated in different ways. Um, and then, of course, I mentioned the work of Tfut Abu Hudeim, who looks at Beirut as a city. She's also someone who works on sort of urban history, but specifically the social history and the idea of the home. But she looks at how global forces change Beirut. And again, the same with Sudhus Shaif's work, which also looks at Beirut. Um, to switch gears for a second. So as much as I enjoy talking about global history, one thing I enjoyed about your book is that you demonstrate, um, and I guess there's a bit of global history in, in what I'm about to say, how morality and emotions are intertwined in both Beirut and in Cairo. Um, so what exactly is the relationship, as you see it, between morality and emotions? Because it seems very intuitive that our emotions are tied into how we act morally or how morality is seen. But how is it played out in both cities? So there is, of course, there's a longer history to, you know, the association of emotions and reality in, in both places. Um, but... During the second half of the 19th century, the relation between morality and emotions uh, becomes a more pressing issue, um, mostly due to two uh, dynamics that we can observe in the two cities. So one of them is, is, is urban change. Um, so we can observe in Berlin and Cairo that you know, these cities change tremendously. There's uh, population growth. There are new neighborhoods. There's kind of the economic restructuring, you know, new jobs that um, 
that we can observe in, in these two cities, a, a number of changes really that, that transform um, these two settings. And for contemporaries, and this is kind of the, you know, at the core of my book, for contemporaries, these changes affect emotions um, and, you know, transform them, if you were. So, so for this reason, you know, this, this longer association between emotions and morality be, you know, becomes more pressing because something is changing. And for these contemporaries, you know, the, the, the transformation of emotions, you know, brings, brings these questions about morality to the fore as well. The second, the second dynamic that is important in this context is um, kind of the, the rise of the natural sciences and, you know, findings about emotions in the natural sciences. So for example, uh, there are certain findings in, you know, physiology and thermodynamics um, that for a number of contemporaries raise new issues about emotions. Um, and this is really, you know, not just in a, in a purely scientific uh, discourse, if you will, but, um, you know, since you mentioned periodicals earlier, uh, periodicals are a great source to see how, you know, these, these debates about emotions um, really emerge uh, towards the end of the tree. So, you know, you would find, for example, uh, people writing letters to, you know, a magazine like Al-Hilal uh, asking, what is love? Um, you know, uh, is, is it kind of a, a natural thing? You know, is it, is it, if you will, a natural force? Or is it, you know, is it something ideal? Is it a, um, is it a social, more of a social convention? And these are debates that are very similar in the two places. So what I'm trying to say with this is that the, the connection between emotions and morality uh, that has a longer history um, tries to, or, sorry, begins to shift um, during the second half of the 19th century. Um, and the kind of, the findings in the natural sciences indicate to contemporaries that emotions are rooted in the body and that the body plays a you know, very kind of prominent role when we think about emotions. Um, so in a way, morality becomes more um, kind of anchored in the body through that. So when we think about emotions as you know being important for morality, and we think when we think about emotions as being a, a bodily phenomenon to a large extent, um, well then morality has to do something with bodies. Um, you know, it, it's uh, kind of even opens up the possibilities of. Um, you know, of training the body in a way that it becomes more moral. So this is something we see, for example, with uh, the emergence of um, physical exercise in the two cities, you know, that, that uh, there is this idea of, you know, training your body and, and that this doesn't have just an effect on, you know, on muscles and nerves, but it, it also has an effect on emotions and uh, therefore on uh, morality. So, this longer this longer history kind of changes, and um, the the change of the cities and the findings in the natural sciences kind of make the relation between morality and emotions shift. What I really appreciated about different elements of what you just said is 
we can see the continuity and the rupture to our current day in the way that exercise or productivity, um, which are both things that are associated with some cities, are still seen as moral goods. We're only just reaching a point in our culture where we're having conversations about whether or not um, self-care and health are should always be touted as positive qualities. Um, in this conversation, we forget if we come from specific contexts, just the American context, or these, these conversations have reverberations at different and also different forms or parallels um, in different parts of the world. Um, I mean, um, with exercise in particular, I mean, and you, miss, you mentioned Wilson Jacobs, Jacobs' book. No, Wilson, oh God. Uh, anyway, um, another thing I appreciated about the book was that this was a history not specifically about gender, but it featured gender and women. That is to say, it wasn't a gender studies text, but it featured women to an equal extent as it did men. Uh, and I thought this was quite a progressive move, believe it or not, even though it's quite instinctive that women and men both occupy cities and are, are you know, 50-50% of the population. Um, but you featured both populations and, and you treated it very naturally. Um, so, and in particular, the relationships between the genders um, and how women behave, it has an impact on how morality is seen because often women are seen as a measure of society's, I mean, they're, they're sort of society's morality barometer. So how do gender relations shape cities and the emotions experienced within them? So gender relations are quite central to, to these kind of processes of, of change that that I just described um, that happen in the two cities. Um, and I think what, when we look at emotions, it, you know, in these instances, uh, this, this becomes quite obvious. And also the, the connection of, you know, gender relations and power becomes quite obvious. So we, we, we get this, um, you know, in different kind of texts, there's is often, you know, the idea that, you know, men and women feel differently. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that the body plays an important role, especially, you know, during uh, towards the end of the 19th century. So, of course, there's the question, well, what is the difference between a male body and a female body uh, in terms of feeling? Uh, you know, should, and I also mentioned sports and physical exercise, you know, should uh, women um, also participate in physical exercise, which they kind of strengthen their body, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this kind of uh, the importance of, of a gender difference is is important or is, is kind of um, obvious in, in a number of, of sources uh, for that. And and I really think that what this helps us to to understand is that these debates are tied to um, tied to concerns about power and tied to concerns about social uh, distinction. Uh, so, so one way in which you know the, this the argument of gender difference in and emotions uh, comes in, in in these debates is you know really to to exclude women, for example, from from certain practices. Um, but also to kind of, you know, justify certain forms of social control. So in Berlin, for example, you know, the, the debate about, um, uh, you know, there's a debate about an entertainment district, 
around the Friedrichstraße, you know, a central street uh, in Berlin. Uh, and then very soon, you know, contemporaries observe that there are single women on the street, uh, um, you know, in the evening. Uh, so this this becomes a concern and, you know, the, the police becomes active and there is a strong policing of these these women. Um, so we, we see kind of the the idea, you know, that this this entertainment district is is destroying people's emotions, um, that, you know, it's too exciting, it's it's dangerous, you know, it makes people nervous, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we see how this is tied to also kind of a control of women and, um, you know, a, a kind of an attempt to uh, make sure that, you know, single women are, are not um, walking on the street. And of course, you know, when we think of, uh, of Cairo um, and, you know, Liat Cosma has, you know, written this fantastic book on the policing of women um, we also get, you know, uh, a, a strong sense of how, these kind of processes of urban change um, were seen as affecting gender relations and how there is, is kind of um, an effort of, you know, controlling this um, and, and, and controlling kind of women also in this, um, yeah, in this world of, of the changing city. So I think in short, uh, gender relations help us to, to understand um, the larger question of power relations in in uh, these cities and how kind of you know these these power relations are um, are inscribed into you know the, the transforming urban space and how especially middle class men are are very concerned about you know the effects of of a changing city on power relations in both places. So this is a story of what is traditionally thought of as an Eastern city and then a Western city. So Cairo and then Berlin. But um, I think one of the stark differences between the two is that with regards to Cairo, this is also a period of colonial power with regards to the British. So how do we think of modernity? How much of globalization should be termed as an encounter between the East and the West? Is Cairo simply reacting to the West? I... Do you think that you know colonialism is a is a central kind of difference, and it's a very important element of, of the story that I'm trying to tell in the book. Um, what I try to to do in the book, uh, however, is to move away from um, you know thinking of these two cities as as belonging to two separate compartments, if you will. You know, the West uh, and the East, or you know, Europe. And the Middle East, or you know, there are various other compartments that, that we could could think of. Um, and of course, what what these compartments do, and I think here Cairo is you know a prime example, uh, is to to think of. So if we use these compartments, you know, it, it happens very easily that um, the result is a narrative of you know a history of Westernization, for example. I mean, this you know people have written about this for Cairo that, you know, as uh, Ismail starts to kind of redesign the city in the 1860s, you know, there, this is the chapter of westernization of Cairo. Um, and other, you know, other authors, uh, you know, Adam Mestian, for example, have, have rightly criticized, you know, this, this narrative, also the narrative of Paris on the Nile and, you know, 
various other ideas that come with it. Um, so what I'm trying to do is to look at the two cities, not as being, you know, the same, um, but outside of this lens of, you know, the West and the East. Um, this doesn't mean that, you know, we have to discard kind of, of the category of, of colonialism or of empire or, you know, any other specificities, um, they, they're, they're quite important. But I think what it helps uh, to do is to think about, you know, for example, how these forces of, of empire or forces of capital affected both cities, Berlin and Cairo, in, in different ways. Uh, you know, it's, of course, they're, they're important power hierarchies. Uh, that, you know, we have to think about, you know, the, of course, Berlin kind of itself being kind of the center of an empire and, and Cairo, you know, being, um, uh, you know, affected by the British and the Ottoman Empire uh, and not being kind of the center of an empire itself. Um, but I think, you know, if we think about how these kind of larger dynamics affect the, the two cities. We, we can also move away from ideas of, you know, for example, of, of import or of copying. So one of the things, you know, that this, this Westernization story about Cairo did was that we think of uh, certain changes that happened in Cairo as, as being a copy of something that had been done earlier in Paris, you know, certain innovations in urban planning, for example, um, you know, the, the building of boulevards and, you know, of, of the Cairo Opera, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we can move away from, from this, you know, lens of copying and, and really try to think um, how is it that we see these similar dynamics in Berlin and Cairo? Because in these, in these two cases, they don't spring from direct interaction. So there's very little kind of direct transfers between the cities, um, you know, especially in comparison to other cases such as Paris and Cairo or Istanbul and Cairo. Um, so what, what I'm trying to do in the book with this is, is move away from these kind of sealed compartments or, or boxes um, and think of the history of these two cities as being relational, which doesn't mean that, you know, we should move away from, you know, um, categories of colonialism and empire and, and also from looking at differences between these two places. Now, I want to note that your book does a particularly good job of, of noting what colonial populations do to the city of Cairo, which oftentimes, oftentimes when people want to push back against the modernity narrative, often when they want to push back against the East-West dichotomy and this narrative of reaction to the West, what they do is they ignore the West completely, and a lot of excellent studies have suffered from this. Um, but you're very careful, and you note sort of where foreign populations in the city um, are more present um, and how they affect the city. And their voices are there as well, because these cities are both sites of movement within themselves, but also movement to these cities. Um, but I also tend to think of cities as, as within... There's also another way of thinking about cities. It's center and the periphery. And um, with urban history in particular, I think we think that it's simply the history of the city. 
But who's sort of excluded from urban histories? Just those who don't live in what we think of as urban locales. Can we recover those voices? Is is it difficult to find archives to do that particular work? Right. So in 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 urban history, um, of course, we on a very basic level, you know, there there's similar challenges as as with other history writing. So. Um, you know, there are certain groups that are very easy to find in the archive, and there are other groups, you know, that it's very difficult to kind of recover their voices. So, um, of course, when we look at, you know, these magazines and, and kind of, you know, the written record, if we look at books, etc., uh, there is a very strong presence of, you know, the, the male urban middle class. Uh, and that, that's true for voices uh, in this time period. Um, so what I try to do in the book is to, to combine, you know, focus on these kind of magazines and, you know, um, and other publications where people talk about urban change to combine this with other sources, namely uh, police and court records in order to get, you know, at, at urban dwellers who didn't leave behind this kind of extensive record of, of reflections about urban change. You know, the, these would be uh, lower class actors. These would be, you know, for example, so women who worked in the entertainment dis- industry, um, really a, a variety of, of, of people who lived in the cities. And I think police records and, uh, you know, court records are often a very, very good way of, of, um, of accessing these voices. Uh, and, so in, in this case, you know, the, but that's that's a challenge that is true for, um, you know, all kinds of history writing that, uh, you know, this this figure of of the so-called subaltern, um, you know, how how can we recover these kind of these kind of voices? Um, but there's a there's another uh, important part, I think, to your question um, that is, of course, that if we do the history of cities, it is important to keep in mind that there are also other spaces. Uh, and particularly, of course, uh, you know, what, what we might call the rural um, or, you know, the, the non-city. Um, and I think in a number of ways, um, these stories also come or play a role in urban history and, and come into, uh, you know, the, the, the things that are happening. So, of course, the cities are not islands um, in in these moments. So we get, you know, we get, you know, people trying to sell their their produce from the countryside in the city. We get people moving in and out. Um, there's a variety of actors that actually moves between the countryside and the city in Cairo as well as in Berlin. And these actors, you know, um, pop up in the record. Uh, actually, in, in both cases, um, for example, we also get the figure of the, of the landholder, uh, you know, who comes into the city to, uh, to uh, these famous entertainment districts, you know, to Aspakia or to uh, the area of Friedrichstraße. And, you know, they, they spend a lot of money, but then they don't stay in the city, but they go back to their rural estates. So in that sense, you know, these, these other stories, um, from the non-city, if you will, they they play a role and they come in. So I, I think it would be wrong to conceive of this, you know, as, as kind of a dichotomy between urban and rural, but actually 
you know, there's quite a dynamic uh, interaction between the two. Um, and although this is, you know, in a way, um, not the focus of the book, but I, I do think, you know, that when we look at these records more closely, we'll see that, you know, that there is this interaction and that it's not a strict dichotomy that, in which we should think about these two spaces. I think something else, and you pay quite a bit of attention to this in the book, complicates the idea of the city or the non-city and and the rural and the urban, which is suburbs. And I'm going to make a massive assumption here. It seems to me that suburbs begin to appear, at least with the case of of Cairo, um, in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, And even in the American context or the European context, it seems to be quite a recent phenomenon. Um, in fact, to my knowledge, the way cities grew in the U.S. and Istanbul's and other examples, it had just absorbed villages. And you can sort of see this in the way that different neighborhoods are, are named. Um, they'll have some remnant of the fact that this was once a town or a village. Um, so what about suburbs? Are they, where do they sort of lie? I mean, very clear, this isn't quite, these dichotomies don't quite always work. But where, how, how do you incorporate suburbs or how, do, how should we speak about suburbs? Yeah, that's that's a, a great question. I think. I mean, so suburbs are a very good example of you know um, of showing that uh, you know this dichotomy doesn't doesn't quite work, and that suburbs, in a way, you know, incorporate um, characteristics of both of these places. And this is actually what you know what what also drives. Um, uh, the, their development. So at the end of the 19th century, um, as you mentioned, you know, we get these new projects of, of suburbs um, in Berlin and Cairo, you know, famously, uh, of course, in, in Cairo, Heliopolis, but also a place like Helwen, uh, you know, in, in, in Berlin, it's places like uh, Lichterfelde or uh, Frohnau. And if you look at, you know, for example, the... Um, the promotional material that uh, you know the, the builders of these or the, the companies that created these suburbs produced. Uh, if you look at you know magazine articles about them, and, you know a host of other sources, what you'll find is that um, they were promoted as as a way of you know combining city life with the benefits of the rural. So it was you know the idea was that you could get away from the city. Um, and, you know, kind of uh, enjoy the positive emotions of, of living on the countryside, you know, um, you would uh, become a more rational human being, you would become calmer, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you, you kind of the idea of the countryside as as providing the, the real and true emotions, whereas the city would, you know, only have these superficial and very kind of nervous and and quickly changing emotions. Um, But at the same time, the suburbs would allow um, to still work in the city and to kind of, you know, do of course the the commute. Um, So they, so the idea was that urban dwellers who wanted to move to the suburbs wouldn't have to give up city living. Uh, They would just be able to combine kind of, the benefits of the rule with, you know, their, their daily life in the city. And then if they, you know, for work, they could go back into the city, but also, you know, and this is something uh, that for example, promotional material always stresses, you know, they could go to the theater, 
Um, you know, they could still visit their friends in the city, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in that sense, suburbs are really kind of, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of marrying uh, urban and, and rural, um, which comes out of, of this debate about urban change um, in both places at the end of the 19th century. So in, in that sense, you know, they're, they're a very good example uh, for, um, you know, moving away from the dichotomy of, of urban and rural and, and thinking about actually how these two categories, you know, inform each other and how contemporaries um, try to, you know, combine the best of, of the two. So I mentioned earlier that nationalism was very, very big in Middle East history for a very long time. And to some extent, we still see traces of this. Um I want to be clear, it's nationalism, sort of not nationality, like the work of Will Hanley, even though there's definitely elements of nationalism there. Um, But I do have to ask, where does nationalism factor, if at all, into the history of both Cairo and Berlin? So nationalism um, does play or begins to play a a quite prominent role, um, especially towards the 19th century in, in these two stories. Uh, that I'm trying to, or that I'm, I'm telling uh, in the book. Um, so one of them is that, as I mentioned here, there was this idea of these superficial urban emotions that, you know, would be irrational, they would move fast, um, you know, they would, would drive middle-class men, for example, to do um, irrational things. Um and what we can see in these publications is that national move, the national movement in Egypt, but also authors in Germany who you know, were interested in, in, in the nation, um, argued that these emotions kind of hurt, hurt the nation. And um, they're, you know, they're, in the German case, for example, they're un-German. Um, so in a way, you know, the city becomes a problem for nationalism uh, because it is seen in both cases as, you know, as being detrimental to the nation. Um, so there's this fear of, of a decline, um, you know, of, of a weakening of um, especially, you know, emotional men um, that would make it impossible, for example, in the Egyptian case um, to uh, overthrow colonialism. Um, so there, there, there was a, there was a fear that, you know, the, all of these orientalist stereotypes about, you know, irrational men, um, they wouldn't be true to, to begin with, but actually what would happen in, you know, in a place like Aspakia would be that Egyptians would actually become, um, irrational and especially Egyptian men. So, so there, there's this. There's this relation that, you know, when, when you look at, for example, um, uh, medical, some medical texts uh, that were published in Cairo, you know, there's also uh, within the discussion of emotions, there are, there's also, for example, the category of, you know, of, of love uh, for the nation or, you know, hope and watan um, that is discussed in this kind of kind of context. Uh, and here again, you know, suburbs as are, are seen as kind of a cure uh, to that, or are promoted as a cure to that. So, so you would find some authors, you know, who, who would even make a link of saying, you know, suburbs 
do not only um, provide a solution for these problematic emotions of urban hood dwellers, but through that, they would help, you know, to, to uh, strengthen the nation, to, um, you know, to, to usher in a reform um, that is, is needed uh, for the German or the Egyptian nation to, to become strong again. You've mentioned repeatedly throughout this conversation um, the sources you used. Uh, and I want to sort of ask a parallel question, which is I often feel at this point in time, in 2018, that um, the Middle East is suffering from an archives crisis. And of course, of course, a lot of this is due to political and social upheaval in the region. Um, and of course, you know, human suffering must be placed above the writing of history um, when it is as extreme as it is in the case of um, the Syrian revolution, the Syrian civil war, um, or just the extreme institutional violence that happens on a day-to-day basis in Egypt. But I was wondering sort of what is your, I mean, what is your method of of coping as someone who, who is a practitioner, uh, a history writer of coping with um, increasingly dire access to resources? So um, I, it's, it's probably, I mean, this is, this is a very, very important question. And um, in a way, kind of my experience reflects a, a moment, especially my experience for this book. Um, you know, now it's obviously different with, with newer projects, but my experience with this book um, reflects a, a moment uh, that has passed. So I, I did most of the archival research for this um, between 2011 and 2013. Um, so I did the project in, in 2010, and then you know the, the Egyptian Revolution happened, um, and it was you know 2011 to 2013. I think was a very specific. Uh, time period to do research in Egypt. Uh, and it was also a, a period where access was possible. And, you know, there were, I remember in, in, especially in 2011, you know, there were very exciting discussions going on also about, you know, opening up the archive, whether, you know, the National Archive could be opened up uh, in a broader fashion and, you know, what, what historians could contribute to, um, Etc. Etc. Um, so in that sense, you know, I, I I was able to to use the the National Archive and uh, you know Darul Kutub and and um, you know also I, I worked at the American uh, University in Cairo. Um, so in in that sense, it was it was quite quite a specific moment. I think that obviously has changed uh, since two thousand thirteen. Um, at the same time, um, one of the things that, that my project also kind of struggled with, obviously, is when you do European and Middle Eastern history and try to combine the two, you, you're working with two very different uh, archival situations. And, and here again, you know, the, you know that, that is a challenge. And, and particularly when we think about global history, when we think about questions of access, uh, and, you know, when we think about, um, uh, you know, the importance of, of, of putting uh, the history of different world regions, uh, you know, on a, 
in a in a comparative framework, um, we have to struggle with this question of very different archives and very different access policies. Um, having said that, having said you know that it's it's a difficult situation. Often, I think one of the things that also leads to is that people do actually quite creative creative things, and there there are quite a number of initiatives uh you know that that help to overcome that so for example for my project um i used a database that uh adam mestian and um til Gralad is another person who's involved in that i uh, have created uh the jedi uh, database on um arabic uh periodicals which is very helpful in kind of tracking down uh you know uh places where I could find certain periodicals and, you know, tracking down who, you know, published what at, at which moment. Um, and that is something that, you know, uh, you wouldn't find, for example, for, for the German context. And that's, you know, that's quite a, uh, you know, very creative and, and useful project. Um, another way in which, you know, um, I was able to, to circumvent some, some of the, the difficulties um, of getting access to archives was uh, using the consular court records um, in London um, and also in Berlin and in Vienna. Um, so the, the the consular court records, you know, that, that is a source that uh, you know, for example, Joe Hanley has has extensively um, you know drawn on in in his book. Um, they often provide you know um, court cases and police records. Um, you know, and, and individual cases uh, from Cairo that you wouldn't otherwise kind of get, or, or um, they they provide access to you know police records for the post eighteen eighty period um, that are very difficult, if not impossible, to to get hold of uh, in Egypt. So it is a difficult one. I think that. Um, at the same time, you know, it, it creates um, these creative ways of, of um, managing and, and uh, you know, of, of exchange, which, which often uh, help quite a lot. No, I absolutely agree, um, partially because I think it also makes researchers a little bit more, um, it gives them a little bit more of a push to ask questions and to go places they normally wouldn't, um, to go and see if different um, legations or different unions have archives or different museums and also um, to begin to question what an archive is. Uh, is it always the national archives as in the case of Egypt? Um, or if you ask around, is there someone who has Acacia documents? Is it going to, I mean, there's a really um, interesting dissertation that's being written by uh, a PhD student named Annie Gall at Georgetown where a lot of um, her sources, she's working on the history of food, she got from antique booksellers. Um, and she looks at the margin notes. And I mean, it's just, we, 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 we do need to be pushed at the same time. So there's a, a sense of it being both a blessing and a curse. Um, so on that same note, what are you currently working on? Can you give us a bit of a teaser? Any other projects in the lineup? Yeah, so um, I, uh, I'm currently working on a project uh, that, you know, is in, on a very different time period. So I leaped uh, forward 200, uh, not 200, 100 years. 
Um, and I'm working on the relations between uh, the radical left in West Germany and Palestinian groups during the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, so in this project, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, how these relations were created. There was, you know, quite a lot of exchange happening, um, especially after the 1967 war. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at kind of the, um, the emergence of, of these relations and, and how, the, how they were made. Uh, and uh, from there, what kind of uh, transfers um, came about from this kind of entangled history. Oh, that's so exciting, particularly because this is such a rich time to be working on um, different Palestinian political groups in the 60s and 70s, such as the PLO, for example. I mean, you have the Palestinian Liberation Organization, just because you have people like Tufoul Abu Hudem working on it, Jonathan Gribbets, um, to some extent, Francis Hasso. Um, and then there was recently a documentary that was released using footage that was collected across the globe from the Palestine Film Unit. So it's just... Yeah, it's interesting to see this chorus of voices growing on this particular issue. Um, I want to congratulate you on the new book and wish you the best of luck with upcoming projects. It is a really phenomenal book. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.